0: Today I'm speaking with Deborah Leong, who is Professor Emerita of Psychology at Metropolitan State University of Denver, where she taught for 37 years. She is co-founder and executive director of Tools of the Mind, a curriculum and professional development program that was developed more than 25 years ago for early childhood classrooms to improve how children learn and how teachers teach. Dr. Leong also has extensive experience working on and publishing about early childhood assessment and standards. Deborah, welcome to the Early Link Podcast.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Great
0: to have you here in Portland. It's great to meet in person. Thank you. Let's just begin. I'm very curious about Tools of the Mind as a curriculum and professional development program. Talk about some of the history of how it was developed.
1: So, Tools of the Mind began when a professor who had worked with Vygotsky's direct students, and Vygotsky is a developmental psychologist who lived in Russia. He was born a month ago. Uh, after Piaget. It's interesting that the two giants of developmental psychology were born within the same a month of each other. And Vygotsky has a philosophy about how children learn and develop. And she came to work with me at Metropolitan State University of Denver. And we started, actually Tools of the Mind started with one activity and it grew from there. I think the hallmark of the Vygotskian idea is that you meet children where they are developmentally and then you, the teacher helps the child grow by scaffolding, if you've ever heard of the word scaffolding. Sure. Within what is called a zone of proximal development. So the teacher supports the child's learning on it and individualizes their, her support for each child, and that's how children grow.
0: So, to say more about that very initial idea of where where this came from,
1: so Levogotsky died in nineteen thirty seven and he had written many books about how learning happens and One of the things that he believed is that the core thing that develops for young children in preschool and early elementary school is something called self regulation self regulated intentional learning and Interestingly enough, one of his students is really considered the father of neuroscience. His name is Alexander Luria. So what happened is that there's a sort of a confluence between Vygotsky's ideas about self-regulation and the ideas in neuroscience about executive function development. Executive functions are your the development of these underlying skills or like the traffic controller of your mind that helps you learn things. And so our program has had a lot in common with neuroscience, which develops sort of parallel to the development of Vygotsky's ideas.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, So talk a little bit about this, the importance of self-regulation when it comes to learning. You know, we've done a little bit of writing and investigation into the concept of ACEs and trauma and the effects of learning. And one of the tools that we've read a bit about is this idea of self-regulation and the zones of regulation. Can you talk about what that means for young children?
1: So during early childhood, there is a growth spurt in your prefrontal cortex, that, so that's the area of your brain behind your forehead. And this part of your brain is responsible for your development of self-control. And actually, there are two growth spurts. One is between birth and seven, and the second is during adolescence, where you have this growth in um, self-control and uh, executive functions. So... Executive functions, the neuroscience side, there are three major behaviors. One is inhibitory control, which is your ability to pay attention and focus on purpose, to ignore distractions, being able to suppress what you want to do, to do something you know you should do. So that's inhib- inhibitory control. The second is working memory, which is your ability to think about more than one thing at the same time. So working memory is really your ability to like think of several directions and do them in order, being able to remember all the letters of a word and then put it together to be a word. So this ability to even take another person's perspective because you have to be able to hold your own perspective in mind and theirs at the same time. And the third part of executive functions is cognitive flexibility. And that's your ability to move, uh, to focus your attention on one part of a task and another and go back again. It's your ability to change mental effort when something gets hard for you to learn. So for example, an example of uh, cognitive flexibility is when you read a word You focus on the letters and what the sounds the letters make, and then how you put the letters together to make the word cat, and then the word cat within a sentence. So being able to do literacy and math, being able to control your temper and have good social relationships and be a good social problem solver, all of those depend on your capacity to be intentional, and all of that depends on executive functions.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. I want to get a little bit more into this idea of the curriculum and the professional development aspect of tools of the mind. And if you could paint a picture, help us understand what that means for students and helping them learn and what it means for teachers and changing the way they teach.
1: So tools of the mind is really about learning a philosophy about how children learn and how to use executive functions to plan and organize the classroom so that the classroom is both developmentally appropriate as well as a place that's growing these executive functions. And I think one of the most interesting things about Vygotsky is that he believed that at each age, there is a an activity that makes the most difference in learning. And it's called the leading activity. And it's not that there aren't other activities, but that the leading activity is the activity that's the most important and you get the most developmental bang for your buck by doing it. And for Vygotsky, in kindergarten and preschool, the leading activity for learning is make-believe play. And I know for a lot of people that sounds like it's like an oxymoron, that how can it be play? And (laughs) But actually, he did a lot of experiments to show that young children – when they play in make-believe play, mature make-believe play, which means they have a role, they're somebody, the firefighter, the mom, the doctor, or they can play a story, for example, like a character in a story. When the child acts as this other person and they actually talk like them and they behave like them, they actually engage in self-regulation for the first time because they have to act in a specific way to stay in the role. So the mom role, if you're the mommy, you don't grab other people's toys. You don't say wah, wah, wah because that's what the baby does. And so the child is playing that role and then inhibits other behaviors like grabbing a toy they would really like to play with or playing someone else's role, to stay in that role. And so Bogotsky argues that the first time children actually control themselves on their own intentionally, so it's the self of self-regulation, that happens during play. Most of the time, children are adult-controlled. They do things because you tell them to do it as an adult, but not because it's the internal desire to do it on their own. And so in make-believe play, children engage in self-regulation. So there's a very famous study where um, children were asked to stand still. It was done in 1930. They were asked to stand still under three conditions. One, the experimenter just asked them to stand still. The second, the children were asked to stand still because they were guarding. So this is World War II. They were guarding a military installation or something. And then um, the third, they were asked to stand still while they were playing with other children who were playing soldiers. And what they found is that the children were two, five, and seven, and uh, three, five, and seven. And the three year olds, they couldn't stand still no matter what. And the seven year olds could stand still under all those conditions because they have self regulation. But the children who were five stood uh, still three times longer because they were in the role. So it shows you how play as Vygotsky said, helps children stand ahead above themselves so they can act more self-regulated when they're playing uh, a role than when they are themselves.
0: Are there some examples of how tools of the mind has been used to sort of transform education or, and then also thinking about the academics of it and it's been shown to close achievement gaps as well?
1: Right, so our program in two thousand and I think the study was in two thousand ten. I can't quite remember, but we were the first program that was studied by neuroscientists that showed that a classroom program could actually have an impact on uh, executive function skills in young children. And so our children, after having been through tools, um, grew. And at the time the study was done, nobody really knew if you could influence executive functions or whether it was like sort of a stable personality characteristic, like you're an intentional person or you're not. But it turns out that you can have a huge effect on executive functions by the way you organize your classroom, by the way you help children interact with each other, by whether or not you set play up so that it's something that they plan and think about and you develop these executive functions. And that Doing that affects children's learning. So in preschool, our children plan their play, and in kindergarten, our children play also, and they they plan what they're going to, we call it dramatization, because they actually play a story instead of just uh, playing the community around them. And eventually, by the end of kindergarten, those plans, play plans, turn into learning plans where children really think intentionally about learning. And because of this belief in play and uh, the importance of executive function, it's very important that the classroom have children who have positive interactions with each other and that you create a, a sense of intellectual equity among children so that they value each other's ideas and they value their own ideas and they actually learn how to learn.
0: Right. That's the foundation for everything. And once you have that in place, you can transform what happens as that child moves into kindergarten and beyond.
1: Right. And so, you know, it's interesting because what we do in, in the United States is that we take it for granted that children are going to figure out how to learn when actually they need support in handling things like making mistakes in front of other children. And you have to teach them how to handle error making so that they realize that they can actually look at their errors and learn something from what the mistakes that they make right so one of the things that we do is we have teachers make small errors that we know the children will correct on purpose because when you make an error and you've done it by accident you actually kind of color up as a teacher but when you make an error on purpose one that you want children to correct what you can demonstrate, how to handle an error without the emotional guilt or embarrassment. right? And right. so we ask teachers to do that because we think it's very important for children to feel like errors are something that they can learn from and it's not anything to be embarrassed about. So we spend a lot of time talking about learning itself.
0: I'm curious if tools of the mind is something that, because it's we're talking about preschool and kindergarten settings. Is it something that has also translated ever to childcare settings? Has it been used in those kinds of settings as well?
1: Yeah. So we have a lot of different kinds of preschools Mm -hmm. and some, uh, we're in a lot of head starts. We've only really worked with at-risk children. So that's the major group that we've worked with. And I think one of the things that's really important that we've learned is that you can create this real caring, classroom where children learn to be intentional about how they treat each other and how they, with you know, emotional self-control and how they think about learning and how they actually address the learning process it, itself, that that can all be done without any kind of reinforcement from the teacher, that you can develop this place where all of the motivation comes from inside children. And so So self-regulation is an internal thing. So it's developing intrinsic motivation, in a sense, to do the right thing because you know it's right. So sometimes teachers will say to us, you know, that, well, my children, you know, they do what I tell them. But the thing is that if they're doing it because you're the teacher and you told them to do it, that's a very different thing than doing it because they understand that's the right way to act and
0: to treat people. Right. That's an important shift for educators mm-hmm. too, which and then so that's really part of what's happening on the professional development side of this.
1: Right. It's helping teachers find other ways of managing the classroom so that children help manage each other. So our kids work in pairs, they have a study buddy in kindergarten who helps them learn. And it's really a wonderful thing when you create this cooperative learning environment, both in kindergarten and preschool. And then that means that the teacher doesn't have to be the policeman of the classroom, so to speak. It's interesting. So these play plans I was talking about in preschool, our children plan the role they're going to be and what they're going to do. And they plan it with other children and they do it actually on paper. And then When they go to the center, they have this piece of paper that says what they've decided to do. And if they change their mind, they can do that. But we really ask them to follow through for at least a minute. And what you find is that over time, children actually use that plan to solve social problems in the classroom. So another child takes their toy, and instead of getting upset, they'll say, You know, was that your plan? And the other child will say, oops, no, that's not my plan. So it's really interesting because children don't really go to play to get into a fight. They actually go to play and they have the best intentions. And so what the play plan allows them to do is to write those best intentions down so that when they do get into an argument, they have a place to start to solve it rather than, you know, I'm stronger than you and I get it or I grabbed it first. But it's actually this intentional thing And it allows them then to learn to take turns. So this play plan is actually an exercise in self-regulation and executive function development.
0: I wanted to ask you about the process of assessment. There have been things happening in Oregon, just for the Oregon context, where there's just been some questions raised about what that looks like for preschool children or for children who are entering kindergarten and how valid it is how teachers or how educators actually use those assessments once they have the information that's revealed. And on a very basic level, there's this need to understand the skills that children's have, where they're at when they're entering the classroom. And, and teachers need to be able to have some kind of tools to help, them, to help them know what that is. So talk about the assessment from your point of view, from your background, what that looks like in early childhood settings.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I think that is really important to assess is actually child's level of executive functions, because research has shown that executive functions are more highly correlated with achievement in like third grade reading, that kind of achievement, as well as your ability to interact with other children socially and social adjustment. And so I should say the research shows that executive functions are more associated with achievement than IQ, uh, social class of the parent or parent education. So we know that those underlying skills have a higher correlation, and yet we really don't spend that much time working on them in a classroom. I think it is important for us to know um, sort of where children's understanding of, you know, their letter skills and things like that. But I think we're one of the few countries that expect so much in literacy development so early that a lot of the things that we test in kindergarten in particular are reading sub-skills. They're not really reading. It's Reading really gets assessed more in first and second grade. And I think that's a big mistake because those are sub-skills and they correlate with reading, but they're not the end-all and be-all. I think, What is more important is how a child knows how to learn, and those kinds of skills aren't really being assessed at all. We tend to do these quick paper and pencil things, and they give an indication. So what we did in tools is we developed an app to try to better teach reading itself in kindergarten, but also to give teachers formative information about the reading processes and how children are actually learning how to read. So I'm hoping that eventually technology will provide a better way to assess how children are learning to read. That's the important thing because that tells you the long-term trajectory of when they're going to reach fluent reading rather than emphasizing you know, just letter names and sub-skills, which are not the same thing as learning how to
0: read. They're learning some of the basic tools. It's like they're learning pre-reading skills. Pre-reading skills, Identification of letters and letter sounds and those kinds of things. Yeah,
1: which are important, but it's not the same thing as reading. No. And in fact, you know, the research that was done at the time of the National Reading Panel, they actually found that vocabulary comprehension and development is more highly correlated with third grade reading than actual letter names. Mm-hmm. So, but we still, the emphasis is on teaching all of these little discontinuous sub skills, like, you know, being able to read 10 three letter words that aren't in a sentence, right, right, <laughs> but, right, and being able to decode. So, I don't want to say that I think decoding is unimportant, but I think that we've gotten away from the importance of the major underlying skills that actually truly predict whether you're going to have difficulty learning, like your vocabulary, your oral language, your ability to talk to someone else, you know, um, your self-regulation skills, your ability to remember things on purpose. So we end up teaching to the test. And I think that's the worst thing, yeah. to deny all the richness of of everything in a child's life that really builds the vocabulary and underlying understanding and experience.
0: So what does, ideally, if we're assessing executive function, what does an assessment of executive function look like if it's working well?
1: So behaviorally, what you see what children are able to do, they're – are computerized tests that look at executive functions. But if you're a teacher in the classroom, some of the things that children can do when they have executive functions is they can pay attention and follow you doing a rhythm. So if you did clap, clap, snap, you can stop and they can repeat that and you can add another behavior onto it. So in that sense, you're testing their working memory.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And- You can see it in the way they play. Children who have good executive functions are able to stay in a role for 20 minutes and keep creating a new scenario and adding new ideas onto the scenario. So they play the doctor who has somebody with a broken arm and then somebody has a fever and, you know, they keep adding on. It's very much like what most adults today did when they were little,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but Mm -hmm. that people don't do Now in a classroom, um, children have like a 15 or 20-minute, very short play period, and teachers don't help to make that play really rich. You really have to work hard now to get children to play in that really rich way because they have a lot of toys that are really specific, so they play, you know, special Barbie dentist or whatever, so... The kind of play I'm talking about means that children can invent props. They don't have to have all the props. They can just make them up in their imagination or create them using found materials. They can create this scenario that keeps growing, that includes different children, that has that incorporates all the children's ideas about what should happen in the play. So I feel that teachers can see the level of self-regulation by looking at the quality of the play that they see.
0: And you can see then how changing the way a teacher or an educator assesses early on gives them a different set of tools for how they should be engaging their students.
1: Right. Those
0: work really closely together.
1: They do. And I feel that play really just lies right underneath the surface for a lot of children. So, if you do create this play pretend ability in them, you help them develop it, then it just springs to life. And it, it's really a fountain of creativity, not just kinds of self regulation skills, but one of the outcomes of that is children become very creative and imaginative. And it's just wonderful what they can invent. And, you know, that's in the long run just as important as um, a lot of the skills that we really worry about in reading readiness kinds of things.
0: Sure, sure. Question for you. Are there places where you've seen tools of the mind in action where it's really making a difference? What's a bright spot for you?
1: Yeah, so we've had a lot of randomized controlled trials of tools. And our last two was a study that was done in kindergarten in Massachusetts. And our children not only had higher self-regulation, but they had higher achievement scores in the control group. We lowered stress for kids that we had a lot of asperis kids that had sort of toxic stress-like levels of stress. And by the end of the year, their stress levels looked very normal. We actually had growth. We closed the achievement gap and our children actually were reading at a higher level in the next grade. And so, you know, often a lot of these studies, you get gains at the end of the grade you're working in, but you have summer loss, and then children do poorly in the next grade. And in the tools classrooms, not only did we have no summer loss, but in the next grade, the children were learning at a greater rate than the controls. And so I feel that we actually serve almost a half a million children right now, and we have... A lot of really dedicated teachers, 80% of the programs that we trained in 2010 are still doing tools of the mind, which means that, you know, that's a long time. <laughs> Many have lasted several superintendents. Right, and right. But I think that it shows that once teachers know how to create this self-regulated learning environment, that they seldom go back to Teaching discrete skills and having things the way they used to be.
0: Wow, significant. Deborah, thank you so much for being here today. It's been great talking with you.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: This is the Early Link podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Don't forget to tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And you can find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.